Coming up on this week's episode, we talk about how many accounts is too many, Roth five-year rules, and how to get smarter about bonds. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, happy December. Happy December. I'm ready for a December mailbag edition of Check Your Balances. I am as well. I am going to kick us off with apparently we outed ourselves in our last episode. Oh, no. We got an email. I hadn't told you about this in our prep meeting, but I did want to read it because not only is it a mailbag episode, Tyler wrote in, said he loved the episode last week and just wanted to let us know the easiest way to figure out your blood type is to donate blood. They will do it for you and you save lives by doing so, by proclaiming very publicly and loudly on this show that neither of us knew our blood or that I didn't know my blood type. We, We outed ourselves that we are not actively donating blood and now I feel like a bad person. That's fine. We're both bad people. We can be bad together. I don't think I'm a bad person. I try not to be, at least. Trying does not mean that you're not a bad person. That's true. It's it's always it's always a gray area, Dan. Let's anyway, go, let's go donate blood together. That sounds like a fun weekend plan. We we can do that. Uh, we're gonna have to do that when you get back because we're trying to slam a bunch of episodes together because you're taking like another two weeks off, Dan. I, this is a lot of podcasting we're doing in a very short period of time for December. Yeah, I know. We've done a lot of recording this week. I am heading out of the country for a family wedding. I'm very excited, but it does mean I will be gone for a little bit of time. Uh, Returning back Christmas Day. Very good. Well, we've got a number of good questions here. So I want to jump right into it and not waste too much time with our nonsense because we're going to get right into it. The first question that I wanted to jump into, this comes to us from Mac in Brooklyn. Uh, who is a fan of the show. He says, as someone who's been investing in earnest for just a couple years, one of the biggest problems I face is how much money to put into which accounts. Currently have a Roth IRA, employer-matched 401k, individual brokerage account, robo-advised account, a brokerage account shared with his fiance, a money market account, a couple of CDs, checking, savings accounts. Sometimes I think I have my money spread across too many accounts, and it would actually behoove me to consolidate my capital into just one or maybe two of these, but I love the diversity and different instruments out there. What are your thoughts? Is that too many accounts, Dan? How do you frame this sort of problem? So I'll start by saying that you and I have actually been threatening a trip up to Brooklyn. We were talking about that as recently as two days ago, so maybe we'll see him up there as we try some great food and and beverage. Uh, So the first thought that comes to mind is too many accounts is not the same as too many institutions. So every account that he mentioned, I think, serves a very good purpose. So, you know, retirement accounts are all individually owned. So in a household, you might have four to six retirement accounts between two people because we're talking about Roth IRAs, which have to be separated from your pre-tax IRAs. You might have an old employer plan that you've rolled over into a you know, rollover IRA. You might have an employer plan. Those aren't really going to be commingled. Um, and then on top of that, you know, 
investing in a brokerage account, emergency savings, all of those have a very specific purpose. So I think that to some extent, you're going to be limited in your ability to consolidate those. However, I can sympathize with being overwhelmed with lots of institutions. So perhaps you find that those are scattered in a lot of different places and there is a bank or brokerage firm who you like working with and you can get that all under one roof. And instead of having to log in and keep track of a lot of different things, you can log into one place and see it all in a nice consolidated view and keep organized that way. That's one thing. The next thing is prioritizing how to contribute to those plans, which is the next step. Uh, What are your thoughts there, Ross? Well, so I'm going to go back to to what you were just saying about being spread across many different accounts, because I've seen this a bunch. I've seen investors that have an account at 10 different brokers because they consider the different brokers to be the diversification. Sure. And if you're worried about the broker going under, if you're worried about fraud with the institution that you're dealing with, maybe that's the right answer is that as you think about not putting all your eggs in one basket, in those folks' minds... That is spreading the eggs across different baskets. But if you've got a relationship with Fidelity and with Vanguard and with Charles Schwab and with TD Ameritrade and with E-Trade, and you own the same stuff in every one of those accounts, what you haven't done is create any diversification. You've actually created a concentration risk just across different institutions because ultimately what matters is what you own in these accounts, not necessarily what institution they're with. And so that's the first thing that I kind of look at is, Are you just making it tough for yourself to understand what you own? If each one of these institutions or relationships or strategies slots in differently, if they all fit differently and have a specific purpose, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think that's what does create the cloudiness is do you have a good understanding of your total financial picture? Are you looking through the accounts to understand what you really own and what your true asset allocation is? So that would be my my first concern. In terms of where you contribute, uh, I think this is something we talk about all the time. And this is really a matter of tax diversification. So to the extent that in your employer plan, if you've got a pre-tax option, some you may have a Roth option. Uh, to the extent that you're saving into a brokerage account, I think what you're really betting on there is where your income is today, where you think it will be in the future, and maybe most importantly when you think you might need those funds, right? So anything that we're talking about in terms of Roth IRAs, anything that we're talking about in terms of traditional IRAs, 401ks, that is generally long-term money that you're not going to have access to easily until you have reached the age of 59 and a half, right? I don't know why we don't just say 60, but 59 and a half, as the IRS states it, that is when you get to access your money without a problem. The brokerage money, if you've got shorter-term goals starting a business, we bet we beat the drum on this all the time, but I think that that is a utility player account. That's like your Swiss Army knife, similar to the way that you would think about your checking, saving CDs, these kind of shorter-term instruments, because that is stuff that you could get to in the near term, especially if you are a younger person and a newer investor. I think what the question tells me is that he's probably doing a great job of allocating capital because it is important to have all those things. So the cash and the CDs are your safety net in the short term. We've always talked about building an emergency reserve, typically equal to three to, three to six months of your basic spending needs. The brokerage account is your intermediate money. Who knows what's going to come in 10 years, whether you're going to want to buy a house, start a business, pay for college. All those things can come out of a brokerage account. And then you've got your retirement accounts. So 
I don't think it sounds like too many accounts at all. It's just a matter of keeping organized, which is the critical thing there. Yeah, that that's exactly right. As you start to think about this even further, you know, this kind of gets into what we call asset location in terms of what investments do you want in which buckets. So in theory, if we were perfectly optimized around this, I think there's two considerations. One, again, is when you need the money. So when you're going to time those withdrawals and and where you're pulling from and when and, and what that's for. Number two is what is the nature of the investment? So for example, a taxable corporate bond that pays out a yield, that bond yield is taxable as income, just like interest. So in theory, that is not something I would love to have in my taxable brokerage account. I would love to defer that income and put that into a tax-deferred account or a tax-free account of some sort so that I'm not paying ordinary income rates on that money where I don't necessarily have to especially if I'm in high earning years. Vice versa, something that is a growth stock uh, maybe makes more sense in a taxable brokerage account because I get control over when I sell it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to hang on to it. There's no tax due whatsoever during the holding period unless that company starts to pay a dividend. A growth investment tends to work pretty nicely in a taxable account. But again, you have to flip that if the purpose of the money doesn't align with that asset allocation, right? If the taxable brokerage account is for money I might need in the next year or two, well, then maybe the the high growth stock that I was going to invest in is no longer the right choice. So I tend to prioritize between those two things, the timing of needing the money and making sure that it's purpose-driven, make that your North Star. And then after that, I tend to think about where is it efficient to put this asset class? Do I want my higher income things in an IRA rather than where they're going to be kicking off a lot of ordinary income for me? So that, again, I think that's a priority order. It gets very, very nitty gritty, but those tend to be my kind of guiding principles. Yeah, I agree. Tax location isn't very fun to talk about, uh, but it is kind of the next level of asset allocation. Is where The second half of the word allocation is location. So first you allocate and then you locate. Very good. All right. So the second one, I think this is a little bit related, but this comes to us from Ernie. Ernie says, can you explain the details of the five-year requirement for withdrawals from a Roth account? Is it five years from when the account was opened or five years from the last investment? Or is it something else? What do we have for Ernie? Can we agree that the way they set this up is the dumbest thing in the world? So so there is a five-year rule for Roth IRAs. There's a couple of them. And then there's a second one. There are two five-year rules that you have to meet for Roth IRAs. And it's just unnecessary. Let's simplify life. Yeah, it's stupid. So the first five-year rule is relating to your first Roth IRA contribution. So this happens one time. You only have to satisfy this once in your life. And that is the first time you open a Roth IRA and make a contribution, that window starts. You have to have your first contributions for five years before you are eligible to take out your earnings without tax and penalty. Now, it doesn't start the actual day that you make that contribution, but rather January 1st of the year in which that happens. So if you just opened a Roth IRA at any point in this year, at any point in 2022, Regardless of if you do it on the final calendar day of the year, you open it on December 31st, you put your money in, 
the start of your five-year clock is January 1, 2022. It aligns with the calendar year. That's when you've started it. Yep. And important to note that we're talking about growth. Your principal can be withdrawn prior to that if needed, but the growth is subject to penalties and taxes if you're not satisfying that rule. This is an aside. And I have always struggled with that because I hear advisors give that advice constantly about the access point to Roth principal. And it always sounds to me like they're encouraging people to have the ability to go after and get that money. I'm I'm constantly troubled by that because you're right. You're absolutely right. If you put money in today, tomorrow, you need your principal, you can get to it. But that is completely destructive to the long-term compounding nature of why I want money in a tax-free account. It is. I've always used it as a nudge to get people to contribute if they're on the bubble uh, because the alternative would be not contributing. So you know, if you're not putting the money in, it's not going to have that long-term compounding anyway. Like me, I like having liquidity. So if I'm thinking, well, I'd rather just keep my cash and not have it in there, I would say, why don't you pop it in there anyway? And if you need it, you can always get to it. Okay. Understood. Let's get into the hairier part of Ernie's question, which is the conversion five-year rule. How does that work, Dan? Yeah. So a Roth conversion is when you take money from a pre-tax retirement account, you pay taxes on it today, and then poof, it moves over to the side into your Roth IRA that is now Roth money. However, from the moment that happens, another five-year rule needs to be met. So those conversions specifically, for each time you do a conversion, need to meet a new five-year rule before you can access that money without taxes and penalties on growth. So that happens, unlike the first five-year rule, which happens one time in your life when you first make your contribution, that happens every time you make a conversion. So if you're doing annual conversions in retirement or leading up to retirement, each one of those tranches now has a five-year clock on it before you can access that money without those extra penalties and taxes on top of it. Now, the nice thing here, the IRS does have an ordering rule which basically means that your oldest money in the account is what's going to come out first. So if you've been doing this for a while and you're not sure whether the next dollar is taxable, it's always going to give you kind of the benefit of the doubt of going to the oldest money first. If you wanted to be hyper accurate on keeping track of this, in theory, and this would be uh, Max nightmare from the earlier question, but in theory, every time you do a conversion, you could do it into a fresh account and keep exceptionally clean records because you would know exactly what money is in there, when it went in, and then what the growth is relative to that particular pool. But that would make your tracking very, very ugly if you wanted to do it that way. You could do it with a new institution every time and and really make it a nightmare. Go alphabetical. Start with the A's and that'll be your earliest conversion and then go on to like the B institutions and C institutions. Which the the real issue there, you know when I see people wanting to consolidate, sorry, we're bouncing around, we're going back. When people are getting older and they're worried about estate planning, that tends to be when I see people really wanting to consolidate institutions so that their family wouldn't have to settle an estate with like 10 different brokers. Because that's when it's really painful. Keeping track of them yourself is one thing. Having somebody else piece that back together, that sucks. Yeah, but but even keeping track of them yourself is one thing. But you know, you need to make sure you share that knowledge with someone because if everything's in your head, 
sure, you've got it down. But if something were to happen to you, could someone else track down those accounts if you didn't have a centralized location where you were monitoring everything? For sure. And and in the world of electronic statements, a lot of us don't even get paper statements from these brokers, right? Like it used to be that you would figure out where all these accounts are because you're getting a quarterly or at least annual statement, something paper from the broker. Now you may not even be getting that. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's going to make it much harder for people to piece back together kind of forensically if they don't know where you've already got the assets stuck. Yeah. Specific example from from my life. My wife used to work at the Maryland General Assembly. She had a 403B over there. Uh, It was before we were married when she lived at her parents' house. They stopped sending paper statements. They had an old address, an old name, an old email address. We never got an update on that account for many years. We had tried to roll it over, but they required a physical signature from someone in her office before they would do it, which was just prohibitive. So in our minds, we knew that account existed, but there were no records anywhere that would have shown that if somehow we disappeared. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's tough to find if, if you have to go and piece that back together. All right, let's move on to our next question. This comes to us from Mark. Uh, I'm going to shorten Mark's question down just a little bit because he mentions a specific company that I don't necessarily want to mention on the show, but he wants to know if we've got an opinion on when minority share owners are trying to encourage a proxy vote of some sort. Um, So he owned a company. They were getting a lot of pressure. He was getting asked to vote proxy forms, uh, and there was kind of a separate set of proxy forms between the primary management of the company and kind of what they were asking people to vote on. And then what this minority group of share owners were asking people to vote on said he was getting emails, phone calls, prompts every time he logged into his online brokerage. And it was just becoming very frustrating. Uh, And basically says if he had deep convictions about the company, where it's going, who these minority owners were, then maybe he would have made the optimal choice but he made the choice that he thought was best and then four weeks later sold the company just so that he didn't have to deal with it again. What are our thoughts around when you're getting asked to vote proxies? So this sounds like a typical run-of-the-mill activist investor situation where someone feels like there's an opportunity for better management or a change in direction in the company, and they're going to make sure that they have the chance to do that by getting their voice on the board and implementing whatever changes they see. Uh, To put it bluntly, I feel like most people listening to the show and most investors aren't going to move the, move the needle on a proxy vote. I mean, that's just a fact, right? My, my couple shares in whatever company are not going to be the deciding factor between who's sitting on the board of directors of whatever company. No, exactly. If, unless you're a major share owner, your vote is probably not as critical. Typically, when you see proxy votes and uh, we as a firm actually don't vote proxies for our clients. All of that ownership kind of stays individual. So um, we aren't necessarily having to make these choices constantly on how we vote the proxies, other than the fact we get them personally as well. But the proxies, you're often going to see what the board has recommended or what the current regime of leadership has recommended. To go against that, I think you've got to believe that they're doing something wrong. Right, You've got to either believe that management has voted themselves a comp package that is just ridiculous and maybe is aligned for short-term gaming of the P&L and not the long-term health of the business. Right, So if you're looking at a company and you see something like that, well, that would be a reason to vote against management's 
current structure, right? But you have to know that. You've got to be under the hood deep enough that you're looking at, you know, C-level comp and incentive structures, which I think you should be if you're owning a lot of the company. If you're a casual investor that, you know, read a recommendation and you pick up a few shares just to see how it does, the chances that you know that level of detail, I think, are pretty slim. But the better you know the company, the more informed you're going to be on do you think it's being run the right way. Um, and then, yeah, there's an definitely an element of how are you going to really express that influence and, and is it valuable? Um, but that that's really what I think we're talking about here is do you know the company well enough to have an informed opinion? Otherwise, I tend to choose just not to vote. In listening back to that advice, that sounds like a very poor stance to have. Just reflecting on my statement, voting is a good thing, right? My one vote in our elections also isn't going to move the dial, but that doesn't stop me from doing it. Um, but you should be an informed voter too. So if you're going to vote, it doesn't hurt to listen to a couple earnings calls or to read a couple earnings calls and just see what the tone of management is like. Uh, do you feel like they, the business is allocating capital well? And then who are these activist investors? Like, It's likely that they're sharing their agenda with you to help win their votes, to, to help win your vote over. Do you think they have a good case? What is their history? What is their track record? Because oftentimes the groups coming in and doing this aren't first-time activist investors. They've done this before. That's their MO. So just getting a little bit of background before you make a choice can help you make a better decision. And then the last piece, why do you own this company? What do you hope will happen long-term and which path will help get the business there the fastest? Yeah. So, you know, just you saying that, it reminded me, and I forget what the name of this book was. Um, I'll see if I can look it up while, while we're recording this. But uh, it was basically a book on the history of Blackstone, I believe, and kind of the history of the leveraged buyout. And so what used to happen a lot, uh, particularly in the 80s, was that somebody would go in, buy a bunch of a company, lever it up, kind of add all of this debt, strip a lot of the value out, and then kind of leave this carcass of a company that's over leveraged and, and in a lot of trouble. Um, and there's a lot of, I won't go into the details of it because we haven't prepped for a good leveraged buyout show, but um, they were thought of as like corporate raiders of just kind of stripping value and moving on to the next thing. Uh, that's not necessarily how activists are seen today. I think activists are seen today in some cases is really helpful. They're going in and taking a bloated management team that hasn't been motivated or hasn't been properly incentivized or has maybe just been there too long. You've got a board of directors that's kind of complacent, not really guiding the business in a strong way. That could be a very good thing. That could be a shot of life for a new company. I mean, we're seeing an exceptionally extreme example now, and we can talk about it because it's no longer public in Twitter, right? I mean, that that's like... Talk about the ultimate activist investor, whether you think he's nuts or not. But Elon Musk going in and buying all of the company, getting rid of their board, completely dissolving it and saying, we don't think this is being run properly. You're going to have an opinion on that. If you, if you had an opinion on whether Twitter was being run right before or whether this is absolute chaos, that's what we're really talking about. That's kind of a very extreme example of this. Right. Although in a situation like that, as a shareholder... Right. The the end result is I am no longer a shareholder. I don't get to participate in the upside of a Twitter being optimized by Elon Musk. No, but the vote would have been whether to let the shares go, right? For like, sure. As shareholders, they didn't have to sell them, right? So the, the board and the shareholders voted 
to allow those shares to be sold. That was really where they had the choice. Right, of course. And there are also other recent examples of famed activist investors taking stakes in companies you know, that have be- been beaten down along with everything else. And that has caused a pop in the stock because it's, you know, people with a good track record, you're bringing rejuvenation to a business that looks pretty beaten down. And maybe there's the chance that they're going to come in and see ways to improve things. So like you said, this this has been seen increasingly as a good thing if the right investors are coming in to help uh, move the needle. All right. So let's look at our final question for today's show. I think that this is probably the toughest one for us to answer, which is why we saved it to be our last one. And this comes to us from Taj. Another fan of the show, we appreciate it. Taj went to an investing course uh, and he learned all sorts of things like discounted cash flow analysis and basically went through a step-by-step course that taught him how to value a stock. And that created a lot of confidence. And he said, my main question is, are there any highly respected investors that thoroughly teach beginners how to qualitatively and quantitatively buy and sell bonds? Which bond investors should I follow what are some quintessential books on bond investing? That is a meaty question. There is a lot there. Uh, and as I, th- the more I think about this question, the tougher it is to answer. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to out myself here. I haven't read a lot of books on specifically bond investing. Um, I know historically, even though he's fallen out of favor for many reasons recently bill gross has always been the bond king that that was in fact his title known as the bond king on the streets he revolutionized the way people trade and invest in bonds he would be a great resource in learning kind of at least the old school fundamentals of bond investing although the landscape has changed dramatically since he entered the scene in part because information is so free flowing now whereas before he had a leg up by doing research and trying to find uh basically mispriced opportunities yeah and i mean literally he started his career clipping coupons on bonds and that was what he was doing was mailing in the coupons to make sure they got paid on the bonds they owned for i believe it was an insurance company or a pension company yeah i think you're right as i thought about this more i think that there's kind of a couple elements that are really tough to unpack here so number one is on doing the analysis on the company right because to be a bond investor you really need to understand the company or the municipality and how that works. To me, that's accounting and that's finance study uh, on the balance sheet, right? Are you correctly assessing the amount of risk? We can easily look online these days and see the amount of posted cash, the amount of short-term you know, assets, whether those be receivables or, or other marketable securities that are on the balance sheet of the company. You can look and see how much debt they have. The further you get into reading an annual statement or a 10K or even just like the quarterly reports, the more you can learn about the types of debt, the terms of the debt, what the company has done, and how they have structured their balance sheet. So that's really step one, in my opinion, is the further you need to understand the debt of the company, you really need to understand their creditworthiness. The same way that if you were trying to issue a major loan to an individual, you'd want to understand what is their income, what is their current amount of debt. That gets boiled down into a credit score. But I think in the bond world, the credit scoring system is maybe not perfect. If you've seen the movie The Big Short, you understand that the credit agencies are a for-profit entity. That doesn't mean that they're completely unethical, but 
they are essentially hired by the company to rate its bonds. And there is competition in that space. So that is not always the cleanest example, similar to the way that we would say an equity analyst at a major investment bank may may have some pressure on them to give a positive rating to a company right like if you're a an analyst at goldman and you want to participate in the next round of financing and kind of lead a follow-on offering in the secondary market for a company from an investment banking side you don't necessarily want your analyst out there saying this is a piece of trash short the stock sell recommendation this thing sucks now, what they should do in that situation is either recuse themselves or simply not issue a rating. But again, as we think about like how many analysts cover the stock and is it buy, sell, is it hold, the incentives for a lot of these companies are either to not say anything or to issue a buy because they want to be seen favorably in these other arms of the business. Totally, you know, there, there's a, a, a very strong ethical line there. But again, so much of that valuation and that assessment process is ultimately going to be subjective that to say that that bias doesn't exist, I think is crazy. Yeah. So, so understanding the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, critical, no matter what you're doing, if you're, if you're investing in individual bonds. Now, when you read me this question, my mind went to, you can really invest in bonds for two, let's call it two reasons to simplify. One is to be conservative, right? You can invest in bonds for the security of cash flow and knowing you're getting a recurring you know, coupon payment from that bond and everything's nice. You can also invest in bonds for growth. So there are bonds that could be mispriced in the market that you're buying for pennies on the dollar and understanding that those are backed by a strong company could give you an opportunity, you know, to five or 10 X your money if you're buying it at the right prices. My mind went to a book I read a while ago and then reread recently called The Dundo Investor by Monish Pabrai. And it's not specifically about bond investing. It's about investing in general with a mindset of low risk and high returns. And there is a chapter in which he describes a bond investment he made for a company where their debt was trading on something like 18 cents per dollar. And he dug into the financial statements and decided that there was they were current, no defaults. He decided that there was no way they weren't going to pay back that debt and took a stake and, and made a ton of money on it. Uh, it's also worth noting that he found this investment because Berkshire made the same investment. So if you want to study bonds, one thing you can do is find large institutions that you trust or, or big investors who are making bets on bonds and then reverse engineering. Why would Warren Buffett have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in this bond issue? Let's try to figure it out. And that's probably the best schooling you can get. Yeah. So we are going to put a link to some bond books. Um, that I think are are interesting. We found a good list online. Um, most of these I haven't read. The, the only one on this list that I own personally uh, is called The Handbook of Municipal Bonds, which is a textbook-sized piece of content um, that I never read cover to cover, but I, I picked several pieces and, and read uh, at the time. You know, the, I think the current generation of advisors probably hasn't studied this as much for two reasons. Number one is that bonds make sense in an asset allocation, but not necessarily have they been the most exciting asset class over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, truly. I mean, you had a credit crisis where they went absolutely haywire and were a scary thing to own. 
and then we've had this very low yielding environment, I think you're going to have a lot more investors looking at the bond market, trying to understand it. Um, and hopefully that leads to even better content coming out. But I do have a list that we're going to put in that I think are good bonds. You know, the other thing is just how hard it is to take some of these positions. Like the one you just mentioned, Dan, I think is a good example. If you found a piece of distressed debt and you were able to, to get an allocation to it, that's a nice way that a retail investor could still participate. On the other side, if you find a, a piece of debt that you think is completely overvalued, and let's say that the balance sheet of the company is actually terrible and the credit rating agencies just haven't recognized it yet and you want to bet against it, that is exceptionally hard to do. Uh, credit default swaps trade at a $10 million notional value. That's my understanding of how CDSs typically trade. That's just not going to be something that's accessible to the average retail investor. And so you know, I think you kind of have a little bit more of a binary choice of what am I going to own versus can I bet against it on something that, that's going to be in the bond market. Yeah, it's, it's a tough market. And like I mentioned, when Bill Gross was coming up, the information available is nowhere near what it was today, which means there are a lot more players. It's been automated to a large extent. So even as an individual trying to identify mispricing, it is going to be hard because there are corrections in place to, to take advantage of that already that are going to beat you to it before you can identify. Um, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for bonds or bond investing and that you can't find great bond opportunities. Uh, if someone finds a bond book that is exciting to read, please let me know because I have tried to read a lot of bond books and uh, it just it just can't get me going. I can't, I can't make them to the end. I mean, the other thing that's going on in big shops that can afford this type of technology is AI. Uh, and th- I mean, this is wild with what's going on here and kind of what can be done. Let's say that you had a history of 10,000 different bonds and kind of what happened to them. And out of that list of 10,500 of them experienced defaults. If you run that sort of data through an AI training, what you're really doing is you're telling the computer, understand what it is about these bonds that defaulted, that make, what makes them alike, right? And through very powerful computing, even if you've got dozens or hundreds of different characteristics on those bonds of where they were issued, when they were issued, to what types of companies or municipalities, like what are the things that indicate a default is likely an advanced AI system is going to be able to scan those things and create a recommendation of rating bonds in the future. Again, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in terms of training data and how AI gets used in that sort of thing. But that is absolutely something that's happening in big bond shops is that they're doing that type of technical analysis that, again, we we just aren't going to have the capability to do, um, which in many reasons, like just hearing how difficult some of this is, I think is why a lot of people give up and just either invest in an open-ended mutual fund, in an ETF, or, or simply don't own the asset class at all. Um, it is challenging I don't think that means it's a reason to completely punt and not participate. But uh, I love the question. I love the enthusiasm around learning. Um, I wish we had a better answer on exactly where to go to to learn that skill set. Yeah, the one the one thing I don't think AI is doing well, at least at this time, uh, hopefully never, is assessing the quality of management and the leadership. Uh, in the Monish Pabrai book, he talks specifically about the CEO of the company uh, whose bonds he bought. And how much he believed in in his vision, 
which helped push him over the edge to make that investment as well. So going back to listening to earnings calls and understanding who's running the ship or sailing the ship or whatever the saying is, like I think it's whatever you there. do on a ship, Dan. I've I've been on a ship, I promise. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Way to go. Way to kill my thunder. I'm going on an airplane soon, leaving on a jet plane. I don't know if I'll be back again. I think you will be. I certainly hope so. This show would be very boring without you. Uh, we ran a little bit long today from our normal episodes, but we hope that was helpful. We really appreciate everybody that listens, writes into the show. Check your balances at Outlook.com is the email address for us. If you've got things you'd like to hear us discuss, send them over. We try to do one of these mailbags about once a month now. Um, we feel like this is a great format for the show and, and ultimately lets us know what you want to hear more about. So thank you all. We'll see you next week.